Okay. Morning, everybody. So I really want to, I want to thank you for um, me being able to be away uh, this last week. I was in uh, Cal- Chico, California, talking to 150 college students, speaking 50 minutes four times. See, aren't you glad you weren't with them? Um, and uh, the only thing that was kind of interesting about um, doing that in that area of California is they have like wild cougars that attack people there. I don't know if you know that. That like, no kidding, that stalk and attack hikers. And um, which is, it, the funny part about it was whenever we went to the meetings, they'd be like, now be careful that there are cougars out stalking. Which, of course, if you know anything about California, there's actually two definitions for cougar there. And so every time, every, I guess I got to move my own pulpit for Every time they said that, everybody just started snickering, you know. Um, now, speaking of references to slightly older women, I heard that I really missed a good one, like a classic open, open mouth, insert foot moment, and, which, uh, which uh, my understanding is was worth the price of entry last week. So, um, Kevin didn't tell me he was funny. Um, anyway, um, a couple quick sort of housekeeping bits here. Um, because there is not a cantata this year, all of the energy put into creating services that will be conducive to the invitation of your neighbors and friends have been put into the December 19th service and the two Christmas Eve services, okay? Something like 85, 90% of people, particularly if invited... Eve kind of right next to each other like that so that if you begin to invite your neighbors now and they come the 19th and then they come the 24th they could meet some people that could get to, so you can get a little a couple service momentum and we put um, a lot of effort into trying to make these great services so that you're not embarrassed for inviting your neighbors and friends and co-workers and so on <clears throat> also in your bulletin for the December 19th service there's going to be a kids nativity there's something in there for you to fill out and sign your kid up for um, so that they can be disappointed that they're not the cool one that gets to be Mary or Joseph um, I'm just kidding. That's just childhood bitterness coming back. Um, <clears throat> the Awana verse, Second Timothy, I wrote a tie for those of you who care about that. Just so you know, I'm trying to be, trying to, trying to reach out. Okay. Um, Second <laughs> uh, Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I don't know if you're among the 75% of people in the world that think Awana is a weird name. Okay, I remember the first time I heard Awana, I was like, a, a what? Seriously, we have to come up with another weird Christian name? Um, here's what it stands for. A workman approved is not ashamed. It comes from this verse. That's what it means, okay? We probably should have said that right up front. Awana means a workman approved is not ashamed. And it comes from this verse. Now, just a few verses before that, in 2 Timothy 2, 2 to 3, it says this. And the things, and this is like the Campus Crusade key verse, right? And a number of the college ministries too. And the things you've heard me say, that's the Apostle Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others, endured hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So what's the leader of Awana called? The commander. Right? It sounds a little, a little despotic, but it's partly in relationship to this passage in Timothy because 
one of the metaphors that Paul applies to us is that of soldier. Like he says, one of, yeah, you're a child, you're an adopted child that Jesus just loves and sings over, right? That's true, right? It's absolutely true. What are you also? You are also a military member in the army that is fighting against the kingdom of darkness for the redemption of all creation with Jesus as the head commander-in-chief general in whom we do not get involved in civilian affairs and we do not quit while the battle is still on, which is why Christians don't retire from ministry, right? So there's, there's multiple metaphors that are used to understand our Christian identity. Soldier is one of them. Being a workman who's good at their craft is one of them. And these two work together, which could get you basically to the theology that the faith is transmitted through evangelism. That's where you could get from those two verses, that what we need to do is we need to go out among this generation of people and we need to, to share the gospel. We need to speak about the gospel. We need to live out the gospel. We need to act out the gospel. We need to make the gospel known so that people can come to faith and know Christ and the, the, the church can go on and the gospel can go on, which is much more important than any one of us particularly. Um, however, I think it's important on this Sunday morning, um, when, when we look at this, when we celebrate this whole issue of children being involved in knowing the gospel, that preaching the gospel across a generation doesn't get things on to the next generation. Preaching and sharing the gospel across doesn't get us through to the next. And um, one of the ways this comes up is in a passage in Judges, right after the Israelites go into Israel and Joshua dies, it says this. After that, meaning after Joshua's death, a whole generation had been— I'm sorry, it says, after the whole generation— had been gathered to their fathers, which is the Old Testament euphemism for dying, okay? So Joshua's whole generation, the people who had actually fought their way into the land and seen God work on their behalf with their own eyes, they had seen the walls of Jericho just fall down, right? That was that generation. They saw it with their own eyes. He said, and now all all those people died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Okay, so these are the grandchildren. You see how this works? One generation dies, another generation grows up. So the grandchildren didn't know what the grandparents knew. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And the whole book of Judges is about how this happens again and again and again. And one of the things that we get off to with a running start in the first books after the Torah, the first five books, the first narrative books of the Bible, is that the, is that the knowledge of God does not transmit itself. Okay? The, listen, listen to me. The knowledge of God does not transmit itself to the next generation. I remember when I was a kid, I went on a father-son camping trip. It was a canoe trip with my dad. And uh, my dad was an agnostic. I came, come from an agnostic home. And um, he grew up an American Baptist. His parents went to church every week for 50 years. And we went out in this camp, and, and one of the things we had to do for the personal devotional time was to look up something in the book of Psalms. And so he handed me this green King James Version Gideon New Testament. And he said, son, look up the book of Psalms while I finish fixing something on the tent. And I looked through, and I looked through, and I looked through, and I finally said, Dad, listen, I looked through this whole book. I cannot find any one of these books that starts with the letter S at all. And I, re- and I remember his reaction. He was surprised at my ignorance. I, re- I-, I can remember his reaction. I was like eight. 
but I remember his reaction to this day that he was so surprised that I would be so ignorant. He does not know Psalms starts with a P. I mean, it's on the cover, right? And Psalms, P, right? But, but you've got to be taught that. And that's a very elementary thing about the Bible. And I didn't know it because, and here's why. It didn't get transmitted to me. I mean, how, how am, I, am I supposed to learn this, like, through genetics or something? Like, there's, oh, there's the DNA code of the X and Y chromosome and eye color, and then there's also Jesus, right? That's not how it works. And what we need to understand is, is that um, in each generation, it is not merely the, the, the job or the mission of the church to reach a generation, but to raise a generation to know, love, serve, and glory and enjoy Christ. So in, in this moment, High Point Church, all the churches in Madison that believe the gospel, all the churches in America and the world, it's, it's this generation, this historical moment of the church, it is our job not just to reach a generation with the gospel, which is our mission, it is also our mission to simultaneously raise a generation for the gospel. And listen, this was not a surprise that the Israelites figured out in the first narrative books of the Bible. God had explicitly told this to them right when they were about to go into the land. Right, he'd already given them the law in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, right? The next book, Deuter- Deuteronomy, right? Deutero 2, second. Namos, law. So the second law. So just before they go in, God gives them the law a second time, right? And he says, okay, now listen. You're going to go in this new place, and you have got to transmit the word to the next generation. So he says, he encapsulates the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you are to be upon your hearts, right? So there's the primacy of example, right? They're to be on your hearts. You don't just teach them to your kids, right? So, I mean, how many young couples, they come to church because they've got some kids, they want their kids to learn a little morality, so they come to church, and they're hoping their kids are going to learn the morality while they just basically live as decent folks, right? It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Well, because... If you come to let your kids get some morality, they see how you—they they observe you. They know how you feel about it, and it doesn't take. It has to be on your heart first. If you want your kid to absorb the gospel, absorb the gospel, right? And then it—but it doesn't stop at the primacy example. It says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the roads, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Verse 9 is actually the biblical warrant for tacky scripture signs in people's houses, right? So you can make fun of them for the embroidery around them or for picking all the same verses over and over again, but there's scripture warrant for tacky scripture signs in your houses, right? And even in your bathrooms. It doesn't say bathrooms, actually. Um, anyway, the point here is, is that it first has to be on our hearts, but then transmission has to be deliberate. Like, how much more explicit could he be that transmission has to be deliberate? He says, now, when, you, when you're walking, that's a really good time to talk about, about the law of God. And when you're, when you're sitting, that's a really good time to talk about the law of God. And when you, you know, it's, it's kind of like saying, when your kids wake up in the morning, it's a great time, time to talk about Jesus. When they eat breakfast, fantastic time to talk. When you're driving to school, when you pick them up from school, when you're bringing them home, when you're sitting down for dinner, when you're having that crazy time after dinner, while you're cooking dinner, when you're getting ready for bed, when they go to bed. When, th- these, are all, these are all fantastic times, and do it, right? 
because you can't believe too much in the idea of transmission. Okay, I've got nine pages and not a lot of time, so let's just keep rolling, shall we? What I want to do this morning is I want to look at what I think are seven misconceptions that we have about children, family, child rearing, and procreation that deeply affect the structures of our thinking about transmitting the faith and one of the reasons we back off of it, okay? Um, The world is frankly full of misconceptions about procreation, parenting, and child rearing, all that sort of thing. Um, One of the top ten famous Gibson quotes in, in Gibson lore is once when I was eight, I declared sort of out of the blue while driving to the grocery store that when I got married, I was going to have my wife artificially inseminated. That really happened. Thankfully, they didn't hold me to it. But, and, and if you grew up on a beef farm or a dairy farm, right? I grew up on a beef farm. So if you grew up on a cow farm, you can understand how a child could get that misconception, helping dad. Um, yeah. So, but here, 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 listen. I think there are some other very misguided notions out there about procreation and child rearing and raising kids and discipline and all that sort of thing. And I want to hit seven of them briefly this morning. I'll put this whole manuscript on my blog this afternoon, so the stuff I skip you can find if you like. The first is um, that the world has too many people already and having kids is selfish. Okay, now that's, you may not be believed widely here, but I think that Many people in our city believe it. Probably a bunch of us believe it. And I'll just tell you, almost everybody who grew up who's under the age of 40 has that complex somewhere in their mind. I know both my brother and I had it too. In fact, I, um, I said this week, I was sitting with a college student in this um, hotel we were at, and my brother was there, and I said, you know, one, I said, my brother's two years older than me, but my kids are four years—I'm six years ahead of him in terms of having kids. But that's really because— he did a bunch of degree collecting. He got his, you know, PhD in engineering, all this kind of stuff. And he turned to me, he said, no, that's not true. It's not true. He said, you solved your theology of children six years earlier than we did. That's what it really was. Um, almost, almost everybody in my generation, and I assume that's true of everybody younger than me too, really has a procreation complex. Um, a UK magazine in two, 2007 did a feature article on a 35-year-old woman who um, is a crusader for um, sterilization and not having any kids. She said this, having kids is selfish. It's all about maintaining your genetic line at the expense of the planet, says Tony Vernelli, 35. Every person who is born uses more food, more water, more land, more fossil fuels, more trees, and produces more rubbish, more pollution, and more greenhouse gases, and adds to the problem of overpopulation. While most parents view their children as the ultimate miracle of nature, Tony seems to think of them as sinister as a sinister threat to the future. That is a real view that is really out there, and there is some reasonability. In fact, most of us have seen these sorts of graphs on, on um, global population, right? That it's out of control, it's crazy, and a lot of them, this is actually from the UN, a lot of them um, have, where's my little light here? Ooh, you see the little green line there? That's the, when we have too many people and so we all kill each other line. No, seriously, no, seriously. If you look at um, projected populations, usually they either look like the red one, they just go through the roof, and we all just starve to death, or there's this green line, this other line that dips down, and that's the idea that at some point we reach a resource threshold on things like water, and so we have to fight a global war and kill off half the people in the world. 
right? That, those are the population extrapolations that are out there. Now, actually, there, there's been some new research out there that that's, that isn't what's happening numerically, number-wise, in terms of what's happening globally. But the, the point is, here's the point. The world is not so much in danger of overpopulation as not having the sort of people the world needs. The question is not, should you have babies or should you not have babies, simply objectively speaking, numerically in comparison to world population numbers. The question is, what sort of person, what sort of adult would you raise? If you're going to raise just another materialistic consumer that wants to have 50 times more than everybody else and expects there to be some kind of servant class to make their life comfortable, then by all means, don't have children. By all means, don't. It's fine. We've got plenty of those people, and we're going to be okay. We are. But if, if you're the kind of family that wishes to loose upon the world a sacrificial, caring brood of children who will lay down their lives sacrificially for others in generosity and in caring and in development and in gospel sharing and in that kind of life, then friends, we don't have half the billions of those people we need. The, the question is not, will we have children? The question is, as a community, as individual families, what sort of children shall we raise? Whether we be, they be from our own wombs or whether they be some of the tens of millions of orphans around the world in need of care and raising. I had a bunch more on that, but we'll just skip it. <clears throat> Two, and I, I do hope this isn't believed widely in the church, but you hear it fairly regularly, I should not prejudice my kids about faith because they have to make their own religious decisions for those decisions to be authentic. Have you ever heard that one? Yeah. Now, my parents did that, but my parents were in some ways right to do that because my parents were agnostics. Right? If you don't know, what are you going to do with your kids? You got to let them figure it out. Right? But as Christians, that is not an option logically available to us if we're Christians. The two ideas are mutually exclusive. For a number of different reasons. The first is, and I, I stole this from John Piper, is that it is impossible not to teach a ch child about God, okay? We gotta, be, we gotta be realistic about it. It is impossible not to teach a child about God. Silence about Christ is dogma. It is. It, and it is false dogma because it implicitly teaches a child that everything else you talk about is more important than Christ. You cannot help but communicate that. The minute you, you say that the pork tenderloin is worth talking about and Christ is not worth talking about, you are implicitly teaching that child that it is of more consequence how tenderly cooked the pork tenderloin is than Jesus Christ's risen glorious reign as king and creator of the universe and redeemer of humanity. Secondly, it's naive. It's really naive. Do you really think your child at like 18 to 24 is going to go on a world tour of religious study and really deeply understand all the religious options open to them, understand them on their own terms, on their own grounds, and make an objective choice about which decision, which religion they're actually going to follow? Do you remember how intellectually arrogant you were when you were that age? I mean, you would, you would hear a snippet on the news and you would consider yourself educated about some subject. Some of us still do that. Right? The, the fact is, if you don't teach your children about Jesus, 
all it's going to do is create a desperate hunger in them for some guidance, and some other teacher, less falsely humble, will come along and spill their guts on exactly what they believe. Your child will lick it up and believe whatever they believe, and it's likely going to be a university professor because that's the first um, person of authority in their life after you they're going to encounter that they're going to deeply respect because of their achievement and intelligence. I mean, we say that it's all those, it's those dirty university professors. They're always shoving their secular beliefs on our kids. Well, that's partly true, but it's partly because we have refrained from shoving ours on our kids. We should be the first and most influential spiritual teachers in our children's lives. Okay, is this too judgmental so far? Because it's going to get a little worse. Third is, I don't know enough about the Bible or doctrine to teach my kids about it. Okay, this I think is much more prevalent. Sometimes I feel like this. But not because I don't know enough about the Bible, but because I don't, I don't know anything about developmental psychology. I always feel like, well, okay, I know all this stuff about the Bible, but how do I get this in the head of a seven-year-old? What's developmentally appropriate? Right? So you can, you can fall off the wagon all kinds of ways on this, but let me just say a couple things about this. The first one is, um, the fresh student is often the best teacher. When you are just learning something, when you are researching to teach, that is some of the best learning and some of the best teaching preparation that you'll ever have because you, the questions are fresh on your mind. And you read along in 1 Samuel and you, you, come to, you come to the statement, the Ebenezer Stone, and you go, what? If you, haven't, if you haven't read over that a hundred times and just presumed that knowing what that means has no significance, you get, and you get that, you know your five-year-old's going to ask you what Ebenezer means, and you go, Ebenezer, what does that mean? See, you go, oh, you, so you stop, and then you find out. You open a Bible dictionary, you do whatever, right? And then you find out, and you learn, and they learn, and honestly, you really can't learn out in front of your kid? Seriously? I mean, that's a little, is it a cop-out maybe? The second thing um, is that um, it's, it's not too late to start. Some of, some of you may well, look, my kid's already 12 or 13. It's not part of the home culture. We can't really put— Listen, um, my wife was 16 when her dad all of a sudden decided to get spiritual. Now, this was Reformed Judaism and whatever, but she, I, she was 16, and he just started going to Torah studies just out of the blue and started talking about the Torah. You know what says this in Exodus? You know, I mean, just, that's it. And, um— when I met her in college, she had her own Torah. She was going to temple, and she was reading her Torah in her dorm room by herself. I mean, you would be surprised how hungry your kids are for it, even if they protest that they aren't. Um, and then lastly, if you don't know, this is a great opportunity for you to teach a number of things to your kids spiritually that has nothing to do with Bible content. The first is you could teach your child spiritual humility. You, you could teach them by saying, I don't know the answer to that. Right? The sec- and secondly, you could show them tenacity in learning. You could say, son, I don't know the answer to this question, but you know what? On Sunday, we're, let's go to the church library. We'll get a Bible dictionary. We will find out what Ebenezer means. And you actually bring them in here. You go to that church library. You pull out the Bible dictionary. You look, you go to turn to E. You find it. You go, oh, it's two Hebrew words. One meaning stone. One meaning help. So it means stone of help. And so it's a monument of a time and a moment when God comes and helps his people. Isn't that interesting? Or you, sh- you show them a little intellectual and spiritual tenacity, which is much lacking in our fragile generations, which would do your kids quite a lot of good, right? And you quite a lot of good. And then lastly, you could show that you're taking your kid deadly seriously. 
When your kid says, Daddy, what does that mean? Mommy, what does that mean? You go, well, sweetie, I don't know, but we are going to find out because that is an important, that maybe that's the most important question you've asked me today or this week because this, it's this question about Jesus and we need to go find that out. And the fact that you're interested and you're asking this question, we are not going to let this go. Right? Fourth is, I can't make my kids stay still long enough to teach them the Bible, stories, or doctrine, either in private or in public. Anybody feeling that one? Okay, so this is the most judgmental point of the seven. And um, I am going to kind of punt on this one because it's a very delicate topic. And I want, what I want to do is, I want to kind of lightly broach it by reading some verses from the book of Proverbs and reading an extended quote from John Piper who has three grown kids and... Because my oldest is seven. I mean, in most, if you're a visitor, you probably think I'm like 14. So it's, you know, for me to wax eloquent about child rearing is probably not wise. So, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to leave it there. We'll come back to this another time in 10 years. And um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but listen to the Proverbs on this. And do not get hung up on the word rod of discipline. Okay? If what you need to do to not get offended is to just hear... Discipline, Like, I am going to do what I need to do so that my child will learn the right way. Whatever creative means in fitting to their delicate personalities you need to do so that they're shaped well. Just, just hear rod of correction as a metaphor. If that's what you need to not get offended, just go ahead and do that. It's okay. Because in a number of these verses, what you'll see is rod of correction is a wider metaphor for a whole span of discipline. Okay, so... But I just want you to hear the repetitiveness of this in the book of Proverbs. 13.24 He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Discipline your son for, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. 22.15 Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. 22, 13 to 16. Do not withhold discipline for your child. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and save his soul from death, my son. If your heart is wise, then my heart will be glad. My inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. 29, 15. The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Piper says this. This is sort of an extended quote from one of his sermons on children. He says, Many parents seem to have lost their bearings when it comes to handling the disobedience of their children. It's a strange irony to me that parents who otherwise seem very intelligent and who have very good and strong convictions in many areas are nonplussed to know what to do when their children disobey. Many Christians, many Christian parents have absorbed the notion from somewhere that you can't really expect obedience from little children. What is God's will on this? God's will is that, is that we parents recover the expectation that our children obey us. Second, in all humility and love, that we administer firm and just discipline to secure that obedience. Children should do what their parents say. Here's how I encapsulate it. As soon as a child is old enough to understand our command and has the ability to obey it, 
We need to teach them what is right, see that he does it, and punish him if he does not until he obeys both at home and in public. It is a process. We should not be too judgmental or immediate in this process. But it's a process, and I am just concerned we might not be about the process. Now, if I were standing before a group I suspected of being child abusers, I would say some very different things. Some of you may work among child abusers, and you might be thinking, he's just playing into the hands of abusers. I'm making a pastoral judgment in this. As I look at the young parents in the church in their 20s and 30s, the tendency and temptation I see is not toward child abuse, but rather expectations of obedience that are too low and too late and discipline that is lacking in firmness, rigor, and consistency. Those last two sentences, I think, are the critical encapsulation. But rather, expectations of obedience that are too low and too late and a discipline that is lacking in firmness, rigor, and consistency. And, there, and, and here's the reason I bring this up. I, I do not want my parenting failures and bad habits to go unmedicated for the whole youth of my children. By all means, meddle in my life if you know me. Don't, don't rush to a— If my kid, you know, cuts up in church one day, don't, don't run, jump to a rush judgment. But some families that we spend enough time with, listen, if— I, I, My parenting, aside from my own personal goodness, is the thing I am most humanly likely to be delusional about. Okay? I had so much of my sacrifices and my money and my time and my leisure and my relationships and my all is wrapped up in my children. Okay? There, and and the, the level of our idolatry over our kids is rampant. And I am not immune and you are not immune. And so the thing I'm most likely to be delusional about is how good a parent I am. To maximize all the good things I do as a parent and to minimize my inability and unwillingness to be consistent and to be attentive and to be interested and to exert just discipline and even punishment on my kids when it's necessary when I have given them just commands and they have deliberately disobeyed them. Okay? And people are terrified to give you any advice or criticism about your child and about the, the rearing of your children. They will never offer advice unless you explicitly and openly plead for them to, which is why I go into my kids' teachers' classrooms and I say, please tell me, okay? You need to know two things. One, if you tell me something about my kid, I'm not going to fly off the handle and come down hard on them. I'm looking for patterns, okay? I'm looking for patterns in their behavior. And so if you say Abby was bad in class today, she's not going to get killed at home, okay? So don't feel like you're going to ruin your relationship with my daughter or invoke abuse because you're, okay? So it's not, no, but I want to know. I need to know how she's acting out in public. I need to know how she acts when I'm not around. I need to know what she's really like. So tell me, okay? Now, that may terrify you, but listen, here's, here's the reality. I think it's true of you too. The thing you are most likely delusional about is how good a parent you are. You're probably just like me. And so if we will allow our delusional nature in relation to our parent to just continue unabated, what's going to happen is whatever is wrong with us, and it's different for everybody, 
will never get corrected. We will not improve, and whatever is wrong with us will be imparted to our children. Won't that be fantastic? And if we can just get over ourselves a little bit, we can get some really helpful feedback from people. And people are so delicate about this because they're terrified to say anything to us. Terrified. And so they won't—they're not going to be mean to you. They're just going to be like, you know, your kid kind of punched mine in the face. And I don't know if they ate at the wrong time or something, and I created this situation. But he did use a chair to hit him, and I'm just concerned. Um, I don't want to offend you, but he did it last week too, and so— Right? Okay, so I hope we can— Okay, so there's a bunch of other stuff. Let me just do one more really fast. Can I do one more really fast? Okay, so this is, so we'll skip the two most important reference to children's ministry. Um, But the last one is um, this objection. A church focused on raising a generation for Christ will neglect and be inhospitable to single people and couples who are empty nesters. Right? Well, you don't get too focused on children and youth ministry now. Because it, you know, there's all, 60% of America is single. Right? Okay, here's what I say about that. That's bull. Oh, I, I, was, I was invited to an intervarsity Christian fellowship deal where you're supposed to do a plug for your church with all the college students. These are all grad students, mostly. mostly. And it was my turn. I stood up and I said, listen, my church is perfect for you at this place in your life as graduate students and undergraduate students. And here's why. I have, we offer nothing specifically for you. It's nothing. And won't be. So it's perfect. Perfect. You don't need another you know, like single-age ministry aimed at you to disillusion you and not prepare you for the life stages ahead and all these sorts of things. The, listen, the, now listen. I love it when college students get involved in youth ministry because it's great for the youth. But the best thing for them would be to get involved with some young families because that's their next life stage. And most of them don't have the emotional furniture to be happy in it. And it would be a great benefit to them to see people five, six, seven, ten years down the road from them with three little kids running around figuring out how to be happy and joyful in Christ and to begin to ask questions and talk about that and get into a position where they're really going in with both eyes open and they've learned a lot. And, you know, I, I heard recently, it's, it's wise to learn from your mistakes. It's wiser to learn from other people's mistakes. <clears throat> and it would do the single people, particularly the younger single people, um, who could be in our congregation or, or, or might be coming, a great deal of good for them to be around children, for them to be around young families, right? And, and now what about the empty nesters and the other people? Well, um, you have been training all your life for this moment of ministry opportunity. You are, you are in the place, you have come to the place where you have something to offer, right? So what better opportunity could there be than a whole bunch of people two life stages behind you who are at wit's end, who have no idea how to be happy with three little kids running around and being sleep deprived and, and figuring out how to make ends meet financially and all that kind of thing. What, what, I mean, see, th- this is true if those people aren't on mission, okay? If those people are only concerned about themselves and what we're offering them specific to their personal felt needs and their particular slice of their demographic, then that's true. We get too focused on kids and youth and Empty nesters and single people will get turned off. That's true. But not if they're on mission. If they're on mission, our empty nesters and older retired people will find this this as one of the greatest ministry opportunities of their life that they've been training their whole life for. Listen, 
Christian ministry is not physics, okay? It's not physics. In physics, if you haven't had your big idea by the age of like 28, you're not going to have one, okay? The young breakthroughs come from the young minds, for the most part. But listen, ministry is the opposite. Your, your 80th year can be your most fruitful year of ministry. And so your ability to reach and love and care for and nurture other people in Christ is as long as you stay relationally connected so that you can talk to them, your experience should be flowering and ripening and maturing the older you get. And what better opportunity to you than, see, because when you kick that last one out to be an empty nester, you retire from kids. See, the Bible doesn't really give you warrant for that. You can take a little rest and you don't have to have kids in your house all the time. But the, the whole idea of retirement isn't even in the Bible. But well, that's another sermon. I got a, Lexi and I got this box this week. When I first got here, I invited a guy named Ryan Harding to come and I said, listen, he's a, he's a single seminary student. I said, listen, this is a great opportunity for you to see how a senior pastor who's coming into a church transitions in in the first month or so. You can't get experience like this. So just come and live at my house for a month. You know, help us do some stuff in that first month and you'll get some great experience. So he came. I didn't pay him anything. He just came to my house for a month. And um, his fiance was doing a nursing master's program in central Illinois. And on the weekends, she would drive up and they'd see each other and, you know, um, she'd stay with us and we'd talk about families and how we do stuff and they'd help us wash the dishes and all this kind of stuff. And it was very clear that there was a mutual, um, a mutual love and a mutual care between our kids and them, between us and them, between them and us. They asked us lots of questions about the life stage. And I thought, look, this is classic. Look, this is classic. Because, um, They've offered us some things, which have been great for us, and we've offered them some things, which has been good for them. It's a great— But what I didn't realize is this. We got this package this week from Katie's parents with some, some um, Florida pecans and some Florida honey and some things like that and, and some coffee for my wife and a note that said, I want you to know that this last summer was one of the loneliest times in Katie's life. And she just lived for the weekends, just waiting for the time when she could not just see Ryan, when she could be in your home and play with your kids and talk to you guys and, and all of that. And, and it was, now partly that package really just speaks to the kind of parents Katie has, right? But part of it is just, we didn't think in terms of that. And a lot of us don't really realize how lonely the single life can be. And when you're single, you don't really lonely, know how lonely it is until you go back to it. But one, but one of the things that, that I find is that if my wife leaves with the kids and I'm in the house by myself, I have no idea what to do with myself. I'm just like, oh my, oh my. But the Bible says that God puts the lonely in families. And, and the remedy for a lot of single people and a lot of older people really isn't for them to gather with a bunch of more single people and older people. Um, the, really, one of the best things for them is for them to gather with people who will love them and love Jesus and have fun together and if you will not be too cool to be with people a little different than you, you can have a riot with a mixed group of people. Uh, there's, a certain, there's a certain way in which a mixed group of people can be no fun, and then people just like you can be more fun, but then there's another level on which a mixed group of people can be more fun. And I want to encourage you to shoot for that third level. So let me just leave you with this. Um, it is our responsibility as a church, and I want to lead this church, and I want us to be a church 
that focuses not just on reaching a generation, but raising a generation to love, enjoy, serve, and follow Jesus. And I hope that in some of the stuff I said, maybe I've dislodged a couple of things that may have been pigeonholing your mind on some of this. So that we, one of the ways we can glorify Christ as a church is by raising a generation that loves, serves, and enjoys Jesus, that loves each other, and that is prepared to sacrifice and love the world in whatever state we, it finds itself in in 20 years, which could be anything. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work in us and that you would help us to have a right understanding and view of children and their place in our lives and our community and how we relate to them and in, in, in having them and rearing them and adopting them in saving them from death. And I, I pray that you would give us the courage to speak about these things like we should. I pray that you'd give us the courage as parents to invite criticism and feedback and advice and to take ourselves less seriously and to encourage a lifestyle on ourselves that's less delusional in relationship to our parenting skills. And I pray that you would help us be a church that is hospitable to the young and is courageous enough to train them deeply. I pray that you would bless the Iwana ministry and the other children and youth ministries in this church in their endeavor to do that. And I pray that you would impress upon families that they are the primary mechanism of transmission. Moms and dads and families are that primary work. And I pray that you would help us to get over our fear and our paralysis and our inability to turn it into a habit because our lives are so chaotic. I pray that you'd, you'd give us the courage and the direction and the leading to lead our families and to teach our children to know Christ, to know scripture, to know the gospel, and to love you with all our hearts, soul, minds, and strengths. I pray that we'd start with, with those things being on our hearts.